RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. All new starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Shinjo for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit eaglemoss.com slash discovery starships. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 295, Second Sight. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch some sort of Star Trek something, taking it apart for morals and meanings, ideas and ideals, and seeing whether it all stands the test of time. This week, Second Sight, the one where Benjamin has an imaginary girlfriend, but not from his imagination. Also, Richard Kiley's in this one. Richard Kiley? Wow. They spared no expense. John's got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first, a word from our friends at Eagle Moss and the official Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. Flying in to take over your mantle or your bookshelves. You know who keeps China in a China cabinet? Squares. The China cabinet would be an excellent place for some great big starships. And what excellent starships they are. Officially authorized by CBS Studios, made from quality, just solid, weighty materials. Made from die-cast metal and ABS materials, and they're based on the CG models used in the production of Star Trek Discovery, which is an excellent thing for Discovery Starships to be based on. You're talking about big ships, Ken. I like big ships, and I cannot lie. The USS Shenzhou NCC-1227 is nearly eight inches from front to back. You get the display base. You get that collector's magazine featuring behind-the-scenes info, original design sketches, and a breakdown of the technology on board. And, of course, you get a great deal to start off. The first ship in the collection, the USS Shenzhou NCC-1227, is available to subscribers for only $9.95 with free shipping. The place to get that is eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. And there's more to come. Additional models, including the Discovery herself, the Europa, the Vulcan Cruiser, and the Solcar class. That's the newest one out of the line. New ships ship monthly at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price, also with free shipping. But that discount is not the only reason to subscribe. People who are subscribed are also entitled to free gifts worth over $100, and you can cancel your subscription anytime you want. Full details can be found at eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. Now, if there's just one ship you have your eye on, if the subscription thing is not your thing and there's one you want, uh, you can find individual ships. You can go to shop.eaglemoss.com for that or go to your local comic shop. Uh, That will come at the regular price of $54.95. Oh, but let's bring it full circle. To subscribe, you go to eaglemoss.com slash discoverystarships. And a huge thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. John's got trivia coming up in just a moment. But first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. 
Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And with that, we do that trivia thing that we do so well, especially when it's led by Mr. John Champion. Well, here we go. Trivia for today's episode, Second Sight. The story is by Mark Jared O'Connell. Hey, it's the first time that we've mentioned Mark here on DS9, since this is the first of four stories that he contributed here. We did meet him before, though. He wrote the story for TNG's Timescape, which aired earlier in the year than this episode of DS9. Now, originally in his pitch, he had Bashir in the lead role as uh, the person who would find the mystery disappearing woman. The teleplay is by Mark, along with Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. And it was directed by Alexander Singer. Uh, This is the first DS9 outing for Alexander, but he did already direct six episodes of TNG that we talked about. A few notables there would be Relics, Ship in a Bottle, and Homeward. And you might remember from our previous discussions that he was a sci-fi fan and a Trek fan in particular. He directed some of Mission Impossible back in the 60s and really just wanted to walk across the street and take a crack at directing an episode of TOS. Hey, there's a mention here of uh, 500 degrees Kelvin. I had to look it up. 440.3 degrees Fahrenheit, Ken. That's that's, uh, that's the equivalent. That, that It feels like you... You're looking at black and whatever you're getting at that point, I would think. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to be fast, but but that's okay. Well, I mean, Uh, okay, I say that, and then I'm thinking, it depends. Is it happening in a pan, or is it happening in an oven? Yeah, in an oven, I I might roast uh, some veggies at at like 450 or so. Not bad, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. So he's on to something. Yeah. Um, The USS Prometheus. Now, of course, it's named that because the Greek mythical figure Prometheus, uh, the Titan, uh, was the one who brought fire to humans. Now, as a ship, it is a Nebula-class ship, and we've seen that design or variations on it a couple of times before on TNG and also as a model in the classroom on DS9. Kind of cool to bring it back full circle there. And let's talk about guest stars. So, We have Lieutenant Commander Pearsall of the USS Prometheus, played by Mark Erickson. Mark has a relatively short acting resume, but it really jumps around. He started as a child, appearing way back in 1959 on the Loretta Young Show, then on Alfred Hitchcock Presents in 1960. Fast forward a couple of decades, and he makes it to some horror classics like American Gothic, Then fast forward a couple more decades, and he's a producer on the TV series DTLA. Now, Ken, you mentioned Richard Kiley. He plays Satayek, just another actor with a huge resume under him. Richard rose to stardom on Broadway. That's probably where he is best known. He won two Tony Awards, including the one for playing Don Quixote in Man of Mancha, incidentally the role that he originated on Broadway. But go back further, and he was a fixture in TV guest roles starting in the very early 1950s. Just lots of cop shows and live performances on shows like Lux Video Theater and uh, Ford Theater. 
constant guest star roles continued through the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, you know how from time to time I mentioned that George Washington miniseries because it starred Barry Boswick? Yeah, yes. guess who else was in that? Richard Kiley. Uh, he was one of the frequent narrator voices on A&E's biography. So even if you never saw him anything, I'm sure that you heard him. And he was even the park tour voice in Jurassic Park. Yes. So that's another place you would have heard him. What, what else, Ken? What, I feel like you, you've probably got a Richard Kiley favorite. Oh, no, there. no. In fact, no, I had to look no. up who Richard Kiley was to be certain. It was just, I remember when I first saw Jurassic Park, I had no idea who Richard Kiley was. But, you know, uh, sir, is it David Attenborough? No, that's not David Attenborough. Who is it that, that, plays, um, that plays the guy who runs Jurassic Park? Richard Attenborough. Oh, Richard Attenborough, right. Not David Attenborough. I don't know who no, David Attenborough no. is, honestly. I feel okay. now I'm going to have to look that up later. But anyway, uh, Richard Attenborough kept saying, uh, oh, yes, uh, the, the voice you're hearing is Richard Kiley. We spared no expense. That's why I did the spared <laughs> no expense earlier thing. That's So, no, I, got, go. I got nothing for Richard okay. Kiley except for they talk about him a lot in the movie Jurassic Park. They tell, okay, well, well, there you go. And by the way, David Attenborough, uh, a frequent uh, voiceover and, uh, and a host, particularly on British television and for a lot of documentaries. Uh, but, but Richard Attenborough, probably well known for doing many voiceovers as well. All the Attenboroughs, Ken. <laughs> all the Attenboroughs. You put them together, you just got to... You can has them. You can has... All the Attenboroughs, if you want to, I'm fine. Finally, Sally Richardson-Whitfield plays the dual roles of Fenna and Nidell. This is her only Trek appearance, but she is probably best known for being a series lead on Eureka, in addition to many recurring and guest roles on TV. Now, we'd be remiss if we didn't also mention that she was a frequent voice on Gargoyles, which pretty much hired everyone who ever worked on Star Trek The Next Generation. And finally... She was in a movie that I think is hilarious and criminally overlooked, Black Dynamite. In this episode, Commander Sisko manages the impossible. He has a real, imaginary girlfriend. She is real and imaginary. It is like magic. Prologue. Benjamin Sisko is having trouble sleeping, and so is his son Jake. Ben's sleeplessness is caused by a special, sad anniversary. It's the fourth anniversary of the battle at Wolf 359, the one where Ben's wife and Jake's mother, Jennifer, was killed. For Jake, it was a weird dream. Jake was on the station. He was trying to get back to their quarters, but he couldn't find them. Every time he saw something he knew, it went sideways, and he was just as lost. So he went to Ops in his dream to find Cisco, And Cisco wasn't there. And then, it was like the floor started sloping, and he couldn't keep his balance. Ben assures Jake, he's right here. It's a tender moment, capped with Jake saying, he misses his mom. Ben says he misses Jennifer as well. It's late at night, or maybe early morning, and Benjamin is walking the observation deck on DS9. Here, he meets a lovely woman. They talk over a Bajoran constellation, the Runners. Though whether they're running toward or away, Benjamin doesn't know. The fetching young woman says, Sometimes it just feels good to run. Benjamin introduces himself as commander of the station. Her name is Fenna. They talk for a bit, about running the station, about never knowing what's coming next, or who you're going to meet. She says she likes it there, and wishes she could stay longer. Though when he asks her where she's going, Fenna says she doesn't know. He suggests giving her more of a tour, though, when his head is turned, 
Fena is gone. It's like she just disappeared. Act 1. Next morning, Benjamin Sisko has a definite spring in his step, and Kira is freaked out. He's talking to people before his Ractagino. He's not even drinking Ractagino. He's drinking Charlton tea. None of this is normal. This, whatever this is, interrupted by a call from Dax. She and Professor Sietic are in the science lab, and Sisko's off to meet him. When he arrives, he finds Sietic up to something death-defying. Dax explains it away, pointing out that he's a terraformer. Humility and common sense are not part of the job description. When Sisko finally meets him, Gideon Sietic is a huge personality. Sisko's been to a planet Sietic terraformed. He was impressed with Sietic's work. Almost as impressed as Sietic himself. But he's on to other things now. Epsilon 119. Reigniting a dead sun. Bringing new life to an entire solar system. How will he do that? He'll load protomatter into a remote-controlled shuttle pod and jettison that into the dead star. That'll start a cascade effect that'll reignite the star. Thanks says the plans are only theoretical, but Sietic is sure it'll work. It'll be his crowning achievement. Later, over dinner with Dax, Sisko is very distracted. Dax says it's like he's looking for someone. No sooner has Dax gone than Sisko finds her. Fanna is back where they met on the observation deck. She's sorry she had to rush off, though she'd like to take him up on that offer of a tour. She wants to see... everything. Yeah, the text is about the tour... The subtext is, well, there's subtext. It's a lovely time. So lovely that they make plans for the following day. But the mood changes when Benjamin asks Fenna to tell him about her. She says she can't. Then she says she has to go. She turns and runs, ducking into a lift and eluding the station commander. Act 2. Jake's telling a funny story about a friend throwing up. But Benjamin's distracted again. Jake figures Benjamin's in love, and Jake says it's all right with him. He would like to meet her, though he seems sort of suspicious when Benjamin points out that she keeps disappearing. For missing persons, the best person to see is Odo. Sisko tasks the constable with finding this woman, though he gives Odo precious little to go on, because he's got precious little to go on. One name, not sure if it's her first or last, not sure of her species, doesn't know what ship she came in on, vague physical description, and when last seen, wearing red. Sisko thinks she may be in some trouble, though uh, he's not sure what kind. Odo will do what he can. Back in Ops, Dax is playfully annoyed. She saw Benjamin with Fenna, and she wants to know everything. Sisko's shy, and Dax gives him a bit of grief. He'd have told Curzon everything, though it's hard for Ben to talk man-to-man with a female Jadzia. Later, Benjamin, Dax, and DS9's senior staff are having dinner with Sietic and his wife aboard their ship, the Prometheus. And what do you know? Sietic's wife, Nadell? Yeah, she's Fana. Act 3. Dax and Sisko are puzzling over Nadell. She is Fana, isn't she? I mean, she looks like her. Nadell is cold towards Sietic, though when they're alone, she's, well, not cold to Benjamin. 
She just doesn't know him. She says she's never met him before tonight. Nadell seems to stiffen at the mention of the other name, Fena, that when Cisco suggests they talk about this, she says he has mistaken her for someone else. Yeah, Cisco's not buying that. Talking to Dax later, he says he knows that Nadell is Fena. Same face, same voice, it's her. When Odo comes to say that he can't find this mysterious woman in red, Cisco lets him know it was Sayedic's wife he was looking for. But Odo says that's not possible, since docking, Sayedic is the only person to have left the Prometheus. Back at his quarters, a very affectionate Fena rushes to Benjamin. He's standoffish, which confuses Fena as much as his talk of someone who looks just like her. She's not Nadelle. She's not married to Gideon Sayedic. She's Fena. And she's convincing. So Benjamin says he still needs to know who she is, where she came from. But she says he does know her. When she came there, she thought she was looking for a place. But she was wrong. She was looking for a person. She was looking for Benjamin. They kiss. And then Fena disappears. But she's not running this time. She simply dissolves before Sisko's eyes. Act 4. Dax, Sayedic, and the crew of the Prometheus are getting ready to head to Epsilon 119. And Sisko is going with them. The key to the whole Fena mystery may be on that ship. He needs answers. Underway, Sisko and Sayedic talk over plans for Epsilon 119. Sayedic's crowning achievement. Though Sayedic's running both hot and cold on that. Sure, it'll be the biggest thing he'll ever do, but... It'll be the biggest thing he'll ever do. It is, as the Klingon epic The Fall of Kang says, Honor the valiant who die neath your sword, but pity the warrior who slays all his foes. Anyway, there are always the stories of past glories, like the terraforming work Sayedic did on New Halana. That's where he met Nadell. And here, for the first time, Sayedic loses his inflated sense of self. When Sisko says Nadell must love Sayedic very much, he replies, She does, Commander. Don't ask me why, but she does. Back in his quarters, whoa, Benjamin is greeted by Fena. When he calls for Dax, Fena is confused. Benjamin explains to Fena that the last time he saw her, she straight up disappeared before his eyes. When Dax arrives, oh, that explains it. Fena's not there. I mean, she is, but she's not alive. No cells, no DNA, pure energy. They take Fena to Sayedic's quarters, though he's spreading over Nadell. Nadell, who's comatose and dying, according to Dax. It's then that Sayedic sees his wife's double. Fena, says Sayedic. I should have known. Act 5. Sietic is not pleased to see Fena. He says Nadell had promised that Fena would never come back. Fena has no idea what Sietic is talking about, so he explains. Nadell is a psychoprojective telepath. Fena is a figment of Nadell's unconscious imagination made manifest. Sisko tells Dax to get Fena back to his quarters. He needs a word with Sietic. Why is Nadell killing herself for this projection? Sietic says, she doesn't even know what's happening. 
In times of deep emotional distress, Holanans sometimes lose control of their abilities, and Adele is under extreme emotional distress. She's not Sadek's first wife, not by a long shot. His other wives had the good sense to leave him, according to Sadek, but not Nadel. Halanen's mate for life. Even if she wanted to leave him, she couldn't. Back in his quarters, Fena is arguing for her existence. She's real. She knows it. Though she really knows she's not. No matter how real she feels. Cisco says Fena has to go back to Nadel, as she's done three times before. As wonderful as what they have is, it's just a dream. Nadell's dream. They kiss, though they're interrupted by a call from Dax. Sadek has launched the shuttle pod with a protomatter toward Epsilon 119, but he's on it. Sisko tries to talk Sadek out of his rash course of action, saying they found a way to save Nadell. But Sadek says this is the only way to really save her, to set her free. Besides, remember the fall of Kang? Sayadic is one warrior who won't be pitied. And with that, Sayadic makes his final impact, reigniting Epsilon 119. Fena sees the impact, sees the star come back to life, and disappears for the final time. Back on DS9, Nadell comes to see Sisko. She wants to say goodbye and thank you. She'll go back to New Holana and stay for the rest of her life. She does have a question, though. She has no memory of Fena. She wishes she did, but she doesn't. What was she like? Benjamin says she was just like Nadell. And with that, Nadell walks away. The end. Uh, real quick thing before we get into all the uh, the important stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember noticing that in the episode, but it, it just struck me in your recap. Uh, Sayetic is the only person to have left the Prometheus since docking at DS9. Yeah, why is that exactly? So that's the thing. It's sort of a throwaway in the episode because it just, it, you need that bit of information yeah. to, to know that Odo's, you know, uh, security is on top of things. They know who's come in and out of the ship. But that is a big ship. Yeah. And they have stopped at DS9 for a reason. Does it just speak more to the attitude that the rest of Starfleet has about DS9? Like, hey, we're stopping at this place. Yeah, I'm going to stay in my quarters. Um, I really like it here. I think it's just some ridiculous something or other, honestly, because you're talking about a ship uh, about the size of the Reliant, right? Well, well I, no, I, th- I think it's I think it's bigger. I think, yeah. Really? You think yeah, it's bigger than yeah. the Reliant? Because I was thinking it was about the same size, based yeah. on the fact that it looks like they just stuck a thing on top of the Reliant to make them <laughs> right, model, right, but like whatever, stuck a, like an AWACS uh, uh, yeah, system, yeah, a bit top, like yeah. that. Yeah, whether bigger or smaller, generally speaking, you want to get out and stretch your legs. I'm just saying. I mean, there's Dabo to be played. There's mm-hmm. uh, there's Tonga to be played if you're lucky enough. Jumja stick. Maybe you want a jumja stick. There's jumja sticks. There's food to be had. There's an observation mm-hmm. deck. And I know you can see out the windows of your ship, but why not? You know, see out the windows of some other ship, maybe. Yeah. It just yeah. struck me as kind of odd that no one got off the ship for days. You know, while I was there. Um, also, it kind of weird to me. Later, Odo says that no one has come through DS9 for the past week, matching Cisco's description. Um, mm-hmm. which, if we remember correctly, was female, humanoid, average mm-hmm. height, dark skin. 
Really? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. For like a week. Yeah. For like a week. Yeah. Nobody has come through matching what is practically just, well, you know, uh, she walks. Yeah. <laughs> and and she's a yeah. she. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Go to it, Constable. See what you got. And if you keep in mind, uh, from week to week, Deep Space Nine is either uh, the the hotbed, just the center of activity in that part of the galaxy, and there's ships going in and out of there all the time, or nothing happens and nobody stops by for a visit. It depends. It depends on the day or the week that you get there, uh, how they might typify that. Yeah. Um, Now, Kira points out that Cisco normally starts his day with a cup of Ractagino, and all I could think of, and I'm sure that you did too in the back of your head, was, Jim never has seconds of my coffee. (laughs) No, this is very important. Uh, I'm a little bit worried about Jake uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, he has a calculus test in the morning, so he shouldn't be up so late. And second, apparently Keiko is teaching calculus. Uh, sure. Yeah, sure. She can, yeah. you know, yeah. when she's not <laughs> yeah. when she's not tending plants, which I don't know if anybody remembers. She was actually a botanist back in the day. Uh, mm-hmm. When she's not acting as the de facto social worker on Deep Space Nine, because mm-hmm. well, she's female and she walks. <laughs> yeah, then she's like, teaching calculus yeah. or whatever else, or painting, or you know, stuff with clay, uh, you know, whatever. Look, we are so good in the future. We are so good a few hundred years from now that calculus is that easy that a 15-year-old can just can get it from a botanist, from a botanist. no problem at all. Yeah. They, they could even teach me calculus. Oh, that, wow. That's how good they are in the future. Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking maybe they don't even need teachers, or maybe anybody could be a teacher, in which case can we double back on why Keiko is not off being a botanist <laughs> in the Gamma Quadrant, but is instead now a school marm. Um, I know we're going to talk a lot about terraforming mm-hmm. and uh, and all of that stuff coming up, but I I, I do are love. I, I'm sorry, well, are we going to talk a lot have, about I, it? Really? I, well, I, th- I think it'll it'll pop up. Okay. I'm pretty sure it'll pop all up. Right. There. You may have a different um, show plan than I do. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, I haven't read your notes, so uh, <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Um, I do love the line: "You can't tell a terraformer anything." Just like this is a like this is a class. Of people, <laughs> just you know, the the galaxy is rife with terraformers, and if we know anything about terraformers, they're a type, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I, I loved the introduction of uh, Sietic. Uh, I loved him coming out of that room with the lights going. It was kind of reminiscent of some very vintage sci-fi. Like I think of the shot on 20,000 Leagues where Nemo is showing Professor Aranax the, what is essentially the nuclear core of the Nautilus. Seeing him coming out of that flashing light is super cool. Very, very cool. Um, I can only think of a couple of other terraformers that we've come across. There was the okay. one who stole Data's body. Well, who stole data, really, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Ira Graves, Dr. Graves, I believe his mm-hmm. name was. And yeah. uh, and Slarty Bartfast from uh, either Hitchhiker's, I guess it was Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? And I think you see him again in um, in um, uh, Life, the Universe, and everything. You do see him a couple of times. But he was a very sort of like, you know, uh, laid back kind of guy. He was very proud of the work he did on the fjords in Norway. Uh, but otherwise, he was not... Uh, he and Gideon Sietic would not have gotten along. Well, okay, true. Uh, you're going to leave out uh, like a Dr. Carol Marcus or like uh, like a David Marcus or any of the fine oh, people at Regular One? You think they were terraformers exactly? I mean, I thought they were just creating a whole new way to terraform a planet, which is different. They're, like they're creating a process. Like, you know, there's a guy who, you know, can carve you 
a nice chair. And then there's the guy who sets up the machine to build a thousand chairs, right? Mm -hmm. That's Carol Mm -hmm. Marcus. She's the one who's like, yeah, terraformers, (laughs) please. We're not going to deal with a Gideon Sayetic. Are you kidding me? Ego, you know, (laughs) the size of a planet. Instead, Uh I'm just going to, I'm going to make a pill. I'm going to make a pill that you throw at a planet and, uh, and suddenly it's a, it's a life bearing planet again. Yeah, hey, you know, the the they're all they're all in the planet making business or the the life making business. So it's just like those other guys, they're all in the chair making business. Well, I mean, they're right? all in the planet yeah. making business. I don't know yeah. they're all in the terraforming business. See, they're actually forming the Terra. Whereas mm-hmm. well, whereas yeah. Carol Marcus is like, yeah, the Terra is going to it'll be fine. Yeah, uh, it's time now to talk about one of my favorite things. That would be food. Oh. Uh, so what is that dessert that Cisco is not eating? Uh, mm. The Andorian tuber root. Yeah. Uh, I'm, sure it, I'm sure it's great. It sounds like a potato. <laughs> um, Dax is super into it, though. But here's the thing. I thought that she was only into Asna, steamed in particular. Yeah. Well, you say she's into it, but did you notice she actually doesn't even take a bite of it? Well, it's a TV thing. Yeah. <laughs> she, yeah. She but, grabs uh, it and then she's like, oh, this is really good. And I got to go. Yeah. yeah. That, that's why you don't want me on set because they say like, hey, John, here's the scene where you're really into this cheeseburger. And I'm like, we now have to do 20 takes where I devour this cheeseburger. Yeah. <laughs> right. so. Chew the scenery, not the props. Exactly. Um, uh, there's a, another little throwaway thing that Odo has uh, about Villas Thed, who, who we never meet. He's a short-range telepath, so stay at least five meters away from him at all times. There is a whole story here that we are not going to see. Although, yeah. hey, maybe next week, maybe next week is the, the Villas Thed story, which would be great. <laughs> but it was just so entertaining to me. I, I picture all these security guys walking around just kind of like – like stopping every time they take a step. Wait, is he over there? Wait, am I five meters? This is four meters. Oh man. Oh wait, stay back. Go. I just yeah. I, comedy ensues. Hey, uh, speaking of that guy who's a who's a psychic or you know has a, as a telepath, and then Nadal yeah. who is a psychoprojective telepath. See, you would think that that these two stories would overlap somewhere, but yeah. they don't. Yeah, maybe. Was that was that a MacGuffin? Were we supposed to think maybe that guy was part of it? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hadn't even thought about that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> how do her abilities work exactly? Or put a different way, why did Fena fall in love with Cisco? Hmm. Because Nadell hasn't met Cisco, so Nadell doesn't know about Cisco. Now, I mean, she is wanting to get away, and that is something that she can apparently only do in dreams. But then when she gets away in dreams, still, why Cisco? Is it because he's sad and she's sad? And so there's some sort of like psychic attraction there? Because that's really all I could think of. Honestly, that's mm-hmm. it. I mean, unless you're yeah, going to go with yeah. he's dark skinned, she's dark skinned. But physically, I mean, would she have picked up on that psychically, first of all? And second, she doesn't seem to care because she's married to a pasty old white dude. So right, right. it's not like she's like, oh, no, only, only people of my skin tone for me. You know, unless she's like, yeah, well, I tried marrying a white guy and that didn't go well. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm trying to figure out why why she ends up with him. Right. I mean, I, I thought for one thing, just for the for the dramatic purposes, and I, I, I did find it interesting that they had originally considered that Bashir was the one that uh, that would have been at the center of the story. So ju- just a, another person, but it, it was Michael Piller who said, no, no, let, let's give that storyline to Cisco. We haven't explored him personally enough. And I, I thought they actually set it up pretty well, where it was this, this late night thing. Everybody else is asleep. 
Cisco is contemplative. He's out and about. And Fena, the, the Fena projection, the Fena character is out and about too, because this is the, the only time or at least the convenient time to escape and wander around. So had she just run into Quark, if you were closing up the bar, maybe it would have been him. But I, I don't know. It, it just seemed like it was happenstance that, that they were around because it was late and because there were both people with maybe something on their mind and and like is you know looking for a little escape uh but they happened to be the ones who were there i gotta say i love the idea of of it being quark that's mm-hmm. such a neat mm-hmm. idea especially after what happened with uh with pal just a few weeks back oh yeah right yeah. that's a whole different wow. show at that point i mean you get almost nothing yeah 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 you get almost nothing off sciatic at that point but that would have been, wow, that would have been neat. I mean, not that this was bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, oh, it should have been somebody else. I'm just saying. No, 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 no. Yeah. When I'm trying to figure out why they fall in love. I mean, I can see I can see why he would be attracted to her. I'm saying where she's never actually met him, <laughs> where she has mm-hmm. not been off the ship. Why is her, why is her you know, spirit self yeah. going to be attracted to anybody in particular? Yeah. Well, you know, he's a... Uh, He's a strapping uh, uh, space station commander, so <laughs> so true. why not? Why not? Yeah. Hey, um, uh, we have to call this out uh, pure energy because uh, Star Trek loves this and uh, Spock loves this, uh, uh, going all the way back to Errand of Mercy, and so does Information Society. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I still say it's not a thing, but <laughs> in the context of Star Trek, how, how did Cisco touch her? Exactly. Hey, hey, that's personal. Uh-huh. That's personal. Oh, oh, don't ask that. Oh. That's that's okay. terrible. You're gonna you're gonna lose us our family rating. Oh, because see, I, I <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. We'll 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 stay away from that. Um, let's see. Speaking of a science thing, because there was the pure energy thing. There's one other sciencey thing on my mind. What what was that? Oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that stars are not planets. One thing confuses me. Why would a guy who builds planets and paints know anything about reigniting a star? So what do you make of humanity that can almost forget about something like the Battle of Wolf 359? Hmm. Yeah. I can. I mean, it's. I'm asking so I can tell you what I think of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am curious what you think of it. But let me let me go ahead and say what I was thinking, and then and see. What, yeah, give, what give that, me your position first, and then. Let's, well, I'm we I'm yeah. jealous. Yeah, I'm I'm jealous of a humanity that can almost forget about that time that they were nearly wiped out. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's Twitter. You know, maybe mm-hmm. it's all the social media stuff that we have today. Um. In recent years, the whole we must not forget thing has really kind of started to annoy me because you know what I'm really not likely to forget? (laughs) Yeah, a a major attack. Yeah. Yeah, right. That time, Mm. that time that our country was attacked. In fact, I'm given to understand that people in other countries are like, boy, that day, huh? That was, that was, that was a day. Mm. Um, Because it really did kind of change the entire planet. Uh, I, I, I will say um, I do look forward to the, 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 the year that I do forget, that I'm like, oh, is that today? Wow, mm. you know. Um, 
because I don't, it's not just that one day. I mean, there's the, the Boston Marathon bombing, there's Columbine, there's the Vegas massacre in October of uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. If I really try, I have no problem remembering bad things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Virginia Tech shooting, Newtown, Stoneman Douglas. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I like the fact that Cisco doesn't live in a society or work in an organization that's like, hey, don't forget about your black flower that you need to wear over your, uh, you know, your Delta or your communicator yeah. on that day because we all have to remember how much you know things can suck. I like the fact that Cisco almost forgot. Now, if you want to never forget. More power to you. Uh, probably I'm never going to forget either. But if I do, uh, try not to be jealous. I mean, it's not, I don't, it was weird because immediately I was watching it with a friend of mine and they were like, how's he going to forget that day? And I was like, yeah, how is he going to forget that day? That'd be, yeah. that'd be neat. <laughs> if you could share with me how, um, I'll sign up. Well, yeah, I, 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 I get what you mean. The, I think there are some things where well, – you mentioned 9-11, I think, where the the, the date is – You know the funny extreme. thing? I don't think I did. See? No? Oh, you know what okay. I'm talking about. Yeah, you know what okay, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. I don't even have to say. So really – Well, that that was a recent one, you know, uh, as of the recording of the show. Um, no, and, you mean the like anniversary was recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, so, so the reminders were everywhere, and whether it was social media or news or, or what have you, it was – it was definitely out there. And I, I I personally have very mixed feelings about that because I have a personal connection to that. But other things that I don't have a personal connection to, I, I think where the date is inextricably linked, like December 7th. Mm-hmm. Okay, December 7th will not roll around where I won't think that it is the anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. I'm as far removed from that attack in time and space as, as you can get. Mm-hmm. But uh, but but we know the date because the date has been inextricably linked. When you look at other like you went through a list of uh, of shootings and and other terrible things that I actually don't remember the dates, but I remember the events. Mm-hmm. So it, it would take a a day and date reminder to say this thing happened on this day. But if you asked me to do what you did and just make a list of. Uh, horrible events or shootings or et cetera. I, yeah, I, I could do that. We all could do that. I, I want to think that for Cisco, and, and that, that's why I'm so fascinated by this episode, and, and I think that Michael Piller had the right uh, instinct to make this episode about him. Um, we're seeing somebody who we were introduced to as still living, and remember, you live here, Mm-hmm. Somebody who is still living in the grief of the moment of Wolf 359 and living in the tragedy of the loss of his wife. And we never really dealt with that. Um, pretty much after that introduction, he was a guy who went to work. And you could chalk that up to a fault of the show as introducing a character who has this deep scar um, and then not dealing with it because he decided, well, let, let's go make all these other stories. Or mm-hmm. you could say, well, now a, a season and a half later, we've decided to look at, at Cisco and ask, is this a guy who has pushed all of that aside and poured himself into his new work and his new environment and all these new people because he has to try to forget in order to be functional? Um I don't know how deeply the show will get into that aspect, but um, but I, I, I kind of I, I thought it was partly that 
it just, just the the ability to to deal with wrapping his head around the reality of where he is and what he has to do that he he can't uh, uh constantly be reminded of these terrible things but the reality is like he 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 suffered as bad or or worse than anybody else there he 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 was in the battle and he lost his wife and and you know thank goodness he still got Jake there and they can sort of console each other which we'll go back to it but that was such a nice scene at the beginning mm-hmm. um to to see that level of contact uh two things really quickly i may have actually mentioned 911 before i'm not trying to be all clever about it i no 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 i, 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 know, I don't I, I don't remember if i did or not and the other thing is i i certainly mean no i mean i mean no disrespect um mm-hmm. i just i don't understand when I say I'm jealous, I, I this year in particular, as we record this, for some reason, just the number of the number of people saying you can't forget this, you can't forget this. Well, mm-hmm. no, you're right, you can't. And so mm-hmm. it was kind of interesting to see. I don't think they were actually saying anything, but of course, you know, we we can talk later about whether or not they're ever saying anything on this show. <clears throat> Did I do that again? I'm sorry. <laughs> we might come back to that too. I'm curious what you think of. Um, I found myself wondering how much there was thematically in this episode about things not being real. You talk yeah. about the, the the moment with uh, with Jake and and uh, and Ben at the beginning. Um, I mean, the show starts with Jake having a dream and knowing mm-hmm. it's not real. Uh, there's there's Fena disappearing. There's Quark uh, coming to talk to Benjamin, uh, reminding him the the hollow suites are always open. Mm-hmm. It's one of the last things he says to uh, to, to Benjamin. And then, uh, and Benjamin actually saying to uh, Fana, uh, "What we have is just a dream, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. But it's still just a dream, Nadell's dream. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it's not as it's not as over the top as a lot of dream episodes or imaginary episodes or whatever are. Um, I thought I thought uh, thematically though it was sort of a it was sort of a neat thread that ran all the way through. You know, it's funny. I actually was having a conversation with a listener uh, about a week ago, and um, this listener was mentioning how uh, he really liked that opening scene with Jake. And he was like, and Jake's having this dream, and uh, it's really not relevant to the episode, but it, but it's a nice moment. It's a nice uh, father and son bonding moment. And I, I had just watched the episode, and I wrote back and said, well, yeah, it's not directly tied to the plot, but thematically, that's that that's what's happening. We're we're talking about a dream moment and Cisco wrapping his head around the importance or or relative unimportance of a dream. Um, so I I love that it opens with that scene. I think it's kind of the perfect way to open a show like this where Cisco has got to reconcile that the emotional experience was genuine even if the cause of that emotional experience was not. I think that's a fascinating thing to look at in, in the psychology of, of how, we, how we deal with stories like that. You can wake up from a dream and feel horrified or uh, elated or excited or happy or wh- whatever the gamut of emotions are. And you know intellectually that that was not a real thing that happened to you, but the experience of it, the emotional impact of it still is real, quote unquote real on, on that gut emotional level. So I actually like the place that we land at the end of this where, where Cisco acknowledges, yeah, this is another thing that I now get to walk around with 
it, it, it might wear off a little faster because this was a, a blip on the radar. This is just a short moment, but it was something that actually played with my emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the tragedy is that, that for him, he is totally alone in that because she doesn't. I mean, it, it, it's, it's cold. It's a tiny bit like what happened to uh, Picard in the inner light, except yeah. that yeah. Uh, Cisco can be a tiny bit. Cisco can uh, take a tiny bit of comfort in the fact that Dax saw them together. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a fantastic thing in the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, which is not a movie that you think very often. Oh, something fantastic happened. That movie, <laughs> right, because my right. goodness, was that, was that difficult? But at one point, um, 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 his wife, having lost her lover, asked the cook to describe the times he saw them together, because mm-hmm. otherwise it's not real. It didn't happen. You know, yeah. if she's alone in it, then, and, and he's gone now, because he's gone. No spoilers. The movie's like 30 years old, but no spoilers. <laughs> if somebody else can tell you that it happened, then it makes it more real. At the very least, Cisco does have Dax, Dax saw them yeah. together and she doesn't know yeah. much about them, but I mean, at the very least she saw them and she knows how happy Cisco is. And so he at least is not as lost as, as Picard might be after the inner light. I mean, sure. He got a souvenir <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right. and, and, and the musical talent that he didn't have before, but, right. um, but um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm curious. What do you make of Nadell promising Saedic that Fena, a figment of her unconscious imagination of which she has no memory and over which she has no control, uh, what do you make of Nadell promising Saedic that Fena will never come back? Well, yeah. All right. So the, there's, there's something else going on in this episode that is not going on in this episode. Okay. And and I, I actually kind of saved this little tidbit for the very end, but let, let's talk about it now because it might shape the rest of our discussion on this. Um, the original description and the original pitch for this episode, um, it was actually described that this was an abusive relationship. Hmm. So in in uh, Mark Jared O'Connell's uh, story pitch, that that was really the key to understanding why the Fena character was coming out and particularly what Sateix uh, uh, or Sieta, I'm going to mess that up all episode, no letters, please. Um, <laughs> and particularly what his relationship and his cause of this was. Hmm. I, I think that that might answer some of what's going on here with, uh, so you just asked why, why would Nadell promise Sayetic that Fena would never come back? I, I, I think that expresses part of the, the imbalance in their relationship. All right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's interesting and it's, it's weird and, I don't know. I mean, like, at what point did they eliminate that? Did they just cut lines from the script or did they decide to change it? Because you tell me that and now I can sort of see it. Although. <sighs> well, there was one there was one moment that that I thought really it, it was the only true expression of it, but it was still pretty subtle and you could interpret it either way. And uh, that's when Sayetic says, well, this only happens when she's under great emotional stress. Mm hmm. 
And, and then you, you hear further him saying, like, well, it's my fault and I'm the one. I mean, he, he kills himself. I'm the only one who can get her out of this. Right. Who, who can end this, right? The, the great emotional stress, we don't know what's causing that. I mean, look, she's somebody who's been just hanging out on the ship. She flies around with him. He works hard. He, uh, he tells a lot of bad jokes and he's kind of, uh, an over the top presence. Mm-hmm. But, but for the most part, and I as a viewer, I don't find Sadeic that bad. He's just, you know, if you had to hang out with him for a long time, sure, he, he's all those things that I just described. But he's got a sense of humor and he, he's sort of he's fun at parties, you know. But that moment when I kept rewatching the episode, I kept thinking, OK, they're not telling us, though what's driving her to that point because this is pretty serious if if she's gotten to this point before where this manifestation comes out of her psyche but she hasn't gotten to the point where she almost dies i mean dax says she'll be gone in a couple of hours this Mm -hmm. this is really terrible well my assumption honestly was that it was it was the fact that he was ignoring her the fact that he was lost completely in his work and that his personality was so big that it was basically leaving no room for Mm-hmm. For Nadell. I mean, he actually said that, right? He said, um, mm-hmm. you may have noticed I elicit strong emotions from people around me, especially my wives. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I thought they explained it away. I mean, fine. I did not immediately think, oh, he's abusing her. Um, now that you say that, I can see that, except I feel like they tried to walk it back. Yeah, I, I do too. Well, yeah. I mean, witness the fact that you had to tell me about it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it wasn't obvious at all. At the same time, I mean, he is now, he's about to do the biggest thing that he's ever done professionally. We don't know what happened three years ago, but let's assume that the, you know, plan to reignite a star is going to take, I don't know, one year, maybe two, heck, maybe three. Maybe the last time he had a big thing like this was the last time that this happened. She disappears in his life. Because that was the weird thing. I mean, he gives that line of, uh, Cisco says, uh, she must love you very much. And and Sadik says, uh, she does, Commander. I don't know why, but she does. First of all, I don't see any evidence that she does. But second, he really seems torn up by that. Mm-hmm. When he says, uh, what, what was it? I promised to give her the, uh, I promised to show her the galaxy. I would have given it to her if I could. There seems to be, not in the script, but in Richard Kiley's deliverance or delivery, uh, there seems to be a, like a real sense of of sadness and and loss over over the time that he has blown, you know, not being attentive to her. Yeah. Which you know, but he's not gonna he's not gonna do anything about it because he's got stars to light up for crying out loud. And that's the thing. I, I think that no matter which way you typify it, what plays out here is that this horrible imbalance in their relationship. You mm-hmm. know, where, where's a uh, where's a Deanna Troy when we need her? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Probably getting beat up by some alien on the Enterprise. That would be my yeah, guess. right. Yeah, right. I mean, that's yeah. a that's a yeah. that's a thing. So, um, speaking of uh, their relationship, uh, let the record state that he sacrificed himself on the altar of science. Hmm. Uh, did he? Okay. No. So no. So I'm I'm beginning <laughs> to think that he was actually planning to kill himself on this trip the whole time. Hmm. There's an interesting pickup in the audio when we first meet Sadik. Uh, giving birth to a star. Even I would have a hard time topping that one, he says. Oh, yeah. But if you listen with headphones, um, you can hear that the audio changes. Um, he went back and re-recorded that line for some reason. It's po- 
possible because mm-hmm. I couldn't tell when I was rewatching it. It's possible that he just swallowed the line initially and they needed him to pick it up again. Um, but it also kind of looks like they changed it. It sort of looks like he was saying, even I will have a hard time topping that one. Except the line that came out was, I would have a hard time topping that oh. one. Oh, All of which makes me wonder whether he was planning to kill himself, you know, from the start. Because um, yeah. then we move away to, you know, his rumination on the fall of Kang. Uh, so honor the valiant who die neath your sword, but pity the warrior who slays all his foes. This is it. This is the biggest thing he's ever going to do, and he knows that. That's why we talk about the fall of Kang. Did he sacrifice himself for Nadell, or was he just done? Well, see, that's sort of a problem with this episode then, because to me, I, I think there's a very interesting uh, uh, character plot to follow mm-hmm. had this episode just been about him. If, if the, the, the study here is about this eccentric scientist who has poured himself so far into his work that he has lost all other aspects of his, his passions and his personality and really feels like his life is his work. And once his work is over, it's just reached this apex, then he has nothing else that's an interesting story to follow. But I didn't get that because to me, the story here is about Nadell and about Fena and about Cisco. And he, uh, uh, Sayetic, is a, a catalyst for that. Mm-hmm. Um, that would have been another and very interesting story to tell. But but I, I think you lose that at the end and you lose sacrificing himself to the altar of science because what I pick up is this is a guy who is sacrificing himself because of the torture that he has given not only to Nadell, but apparently to every other woman in his life or every other relationship in his life. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's come back to that in the next segment. Sure. All right. What else you got? <laughs> um, not not much else because now I'm intrigued on where we're going to end up in the next segment. But look, I, I will say this: you know, uh, uh, so many shout outs to Rathacon. Proto Matter, Ken. Proto Matter. Yes, we haven't uh, haven't talked about in a while. That wasn't Rathacon though. That was a search for Spock, wasn't it? Oh, well, we learned about it. Yeah, uh, we we learned about the the use of the Proto Matter. But here's the thing: then it just makes me wonder. Well, it's been about a hundred years. <laughs> And everybody's just cool with it now? Yeah, Proto Matter's off the DL, apparently. Proto Matter's back in the game. (laughs) Everybody's fine with that. And and really, there's no... I'm a little shocked that there isn't any discussion about this in this episode. But again, to me, the episode isn't about the science, and it's not about the scientist. It's about the woman here who is, is so damaged by what's going on around her that she's got to use the psychic projection to escape herself well no well now hang on let's let's what? do star trek science for a second the, okay the okay, problem with yeah. the proto matter was it made the genesis planet unstable right mm-hmm. yeah they're looking to start a chain reaction that's going to lead to things blowing up real good in oh, this episode yeah. proto matter yeah. may actually be the best thing like what's an unstable thing we can use that we've heard of <laughs> how about proto matter how about proto matter sure. yes oh plus it ties in with the whole star trek 2 and that sort of reliant ish looking ship yeah you want to turn a, a thing that we're going to say was a star but now it looks like a planet turn it back into a star just, just all right. kinds of instability all right i, I won't i won't i won't you're not going to let that go are you you're not going to let that go dude it's a huge rock it's a huge rock in space it's right. a planet okay so here's the thing yeah. when the okay. star cools down don't you think it gets crusty on the outside it's like when you leave pudding for too long 
No, no, that's it's <laughs> not that's not how it is. You don't think and so? Oh no! Gosh, no. I wish we had some science show we could turn to to explain <laughs> this. Yeah. Okay, how about all of the science shows? All of the science shows would tell yeah. you this, or or a book, or a science book. I don't have that kind of time. With Fenna, gone, and Sayetic, gone, and Medell, gone. It is time to see what is left from Second Sight. The episode is Second Sight. I don't really understand the title. I mean, unless you're just using like this sort of the catch-all term for telepathy or whatever. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not seeing yeah. that. Yeah. Anything? No, no. I, I just I was going to ask if you were uh, fitting to wrap up this show. If I'm fitting to wrap up, I uh-huh. am. <laughs> I'm all about wrapping up the show yeah, right you, now. Not all about it, because I've enjoyed the yeah. show. I enjoy the show. Yeah. 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 So, you know, there's no hurry. You want to talk for another hour? I'm here for you. <laughs> but yeah. this is the part where we do talk about the messages, morals, and meanings, and try to figure out whether the episode does, you know, hold up. Uh, let me let me throw that question to you, Mr. Champion. Second Sight. Does uh, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Uh, I think it's a very good episode, but I will say it's kind of all over the map, mm-hmm. and and that that's the only place that I can really fault it. I think the performances are lovely. Uh, Avery Brooks, Sally Richardson, Whitfield, the great Richard Kiley. They're all entertaining. They all bring depth. Uh, the, there's just a lot happening on the screen. And a, as you and I have found, the deeper and deeper that Deep Space Nine gets into this sort of character drama, uh, they're really succeeding at that quite well. Um, there, I, I feel like particularly in our last segment, we exposed part of the problem here, which is that they, they have a little bit of a science story, they have a little bit of a relationship story. They're not always dovetailing and and supporting each other the way those story threads should or could Mm -hmm. um now i will say this uh it was cool to visit a federation starship again because it's been a little while on that i was impressed to read that they actually those were all new sets um or i i shouldn't say that they were new sets that they were not redresses of the enterprise which you you think would be a way that that you could do that but of course you know, next gen was in production. So they use bits and pieces of other uh, sets. And in fact, you had like uh, pieces of uh, some of the shuttles that were used uh, to create the quarters. You had, I believe it was the bridge. Uh, somebody will correct me, but I, I believe it was the bridge of the Excelsior that was redressed uh, to make the bridge of the Prometheus. It was all these other pieces stuck together and it had a wholly unique look to it, but still very 24th century Federation. So that was a success of this episode. Um, that crew, though, uh, just no. Just no. Um, yeah. I am not buying their captain. And, and, of course, well, we have Dax at the science station because after meeting that captain, I just have to assume that she is better than anybody else they've got on that crew. Um, so, Yeah. Yeah, that that was a mistake. It was like they blew all of their attention on making this good-looking uh, uh, star fleet starship interior, and just said like, "Well, we we don't care who's there. <laughs> we, all we care about is our main characters." Um, 
I, I also there is a little bit of you know I feel like the writing with Jake. Uh, let's look at it this way: uh, Sirac Lofton would have been fifteen when this aired, and, and I mm-hmm. don't know that the writers really knew how to write for someone his age. It was a bigger problem on Next Gen when you had uh, Wesley. But sometimes with Jake, he's super young sounding. Sometimes he's a little more grown up. And and look, I know that what I just described is exactly what it means to be an adolescent. (laughs) But (laughs) yeah, right. But it doesn't always play true to me on the show. Um, And and again, we'll, we'll go back to his that main scene with, with him it really has two scenes, the one at the dinner table and then the one at the beginning uh, describing the dream. And I think I don't want to take anything away from that scene because it is played so well, but there's something just in the text that doesn't really play to me like a 15 year old. Um, mm. And I think maybe part of it is that I want them to dig a little deeper about what, the loss of Cisco's wife or the loss of Jennifer really means, you know, because we, we acknowledge it with Jake saying, I miss her too, or, or Jake saying, I miss her and, and, and Cisco acknowledging that, but you know, that comes at the end of the, the rest of, of their moment. I, I, I still think that is a great scene. I don't want to take away from it. There's still something that I feel like, Oh, Maybe if somebody else had taken a pass at it, it would have been even better. And and the 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 truth and all the depths that could have been played in that scene would have been even better. Um, but those are those are nitpicks. Yeah. In what is over? Huh. Well, I'm I'm just thinking. Um, you know, because he's he's telling a story about a friend of his throwing up, right, and making fun of other mm-hmm. people's food, and that's you know that's that's fine. It's like, hey, we're we're we need like to fill thirty seconds. Maybe they just could have been like, yeah, so I, I did really horribly on the calculus test that I mentioned earlier. I'm, I'm not sure a botanist is who should be teaching me calculus. <laughs> yeah, right? See, then, then you tie everything back in. Exactly, because really all you need is to show that Benjamin is distracted. And so the problem yeah. is they're like, okay, well, let's write something. Because listen, I would ignore that story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would absolutely sure. ignore yeah, that story yeah. because that's mindless crud that you're talking about that doesn't really have anything to do with anything. Yeah, so, that I would tell him to never tell that story again. Yeah, yeah. right. So, <laughs> so we're showing we're showing that Cisco is distracted. He can really be talking about anything at that point. Maybe we don't fall into the problem of you know. Well, let's write something that kids would say because I don't remember what I was like when I was fifteen. There are some things I remember, mm-hmm. some things I don't. I don't remember if I would have laughed my head off about my friend throwing up because of something else that somebody else was eating. Yeah. And that's just it. It's again, it it speaks back to, uh, are we doing a better job with Jake than we did with Wesley? Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Absolutely. But, but there are still moments that don't ring entirely true, even though I I like and respect what they're trying to do with the character. Mm -hmm. So um, all of that was a very long way of me saying that I think that this episode does hold up. It's not without its flaws, um, I, I would have liked to have seen some different things here, but, but I think at the end of the day, it's saved by the performances and saved by the, the depth that we get out of those. So what about you? Uh, what about me? Yeah. What about you? How are you doing, Ken? <laughs> You're doing all right, John. How are you? Okay, good, good, good. Um, it's, it's okay. Here's the thing. Ask me the next question. Okay, Ken. Um, 
now's the part of our show where we get to explore the morals, meanings, and messages. What's the message here? Oh, we're still doing that, are we? We're still doing that? All right, so here's the thing. John and I have been talking about this since the last time we recorded, and I want to go ahead and, uh-huh. and, and address this discussion from last week. When I said maybe we don't ask what's the message, some people seem to have missed what I was saying, because I think I actually did say the words, I'm not saying there's no there there. There is. There is stuff there. A message to me implies intent. Symbiosis delivers a message. The Corbomite maneuver delivers a message. Times squared gives you stuff to think about. City on the Edge of Forever gives you stuff to think about. On balance, TOS and TNG seem to have had many more episodes that were trying to deliver a message, trying to craft and deliver a message than DS9 has had so far. Duet gives you stuff to think about. Progress gives you stuff to think about. Uh, progress gives you stuff to think about and progress. I mean, all of those episodes give you stuff to think about. I liked all three of those. They were good. They were, they were Mm -hmm. really good. I'm just clarifying uh, what I was saying last time. I'm not saying there is no there, there where DS nine is concerned. I'm saying, I don't know that they were crafting messages. Now, all of that is to say, going back to your question about whether or not the episode holds up. I don't know if you remember how frustrated I got towards the end of season seven of, of next gen, but what bothered me was I was looking for them to deliver a message and they were giving me more and more, hey, here's something that happened, right? Yeah. And it was frustrating to me because I wanted I wanted those message episodes. I wanted them to tell me more about about how we are, right? Because if you show yeah. me how we are, I'm going to work towards that. So, where I'm not looking for the same thing from Deep Space 9, and this is going to sound condescending. That means talking down to people, by the way, John. <laughs> That's my favorite. That's my favorite. <laughs> I love that joke. I love that joke. Yeah, I, I never yeah. got enough of that one. Uh-huh. Um, it's going to sound condescending. I don't expect as much from an episode of Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine, I enjoy, honestly, more than I enjoyed a lot of episodes of TNG because I'm not looking for it to tell me how we are. And so you ask me if this episode holds up? Sure. I think this episode holds up fairly well. I didn't like the fact that we knew from the beginning that there was going to be something weird about Fana. I didn't like the, I mean. Yeah. yeah. How could there not be? Right. Could she she have been a twin? Maybe. Could she have been a clone? Maybe. Could she have been sneaking out on her husband? Would have been interesting. But, oh, no, it Mm -hmm. turns out, yeah. Oh, oh, you guys don't know this about New Holandans. Yeah. So, listen. (laughs) <laughs> this is a thing they do. And so that woman you've been chasing doesn't exist. Okay, that's a little bit annoying, but I mean it is interesting stuff about Cisco. And 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 I do think that the stuff about um Sayetic uh, was was really fascinating, including the stuff about uh you know whether or not he was coming to off himself, whether or not he was he was coming there to uh, uh to finish it all. So does the episode hold up? Sure. What's the message? Eh, I personally don't know that there were any, but that's because I don't know they were crafting a message, which is not to say that there's not stuff there. I will say, um, remember those gems that I used to love so much, like those one, those lines that would come out of nowhere? You'd be like, wow, I want to write that down. Uh, Nothing of worth was ever crafted by a pessimist. (laughs) Such a great line. I don't agree. (laughs) No. (laughs) But I think it's a great line. Such a good line. And, uh, And art should be an affirmation of life. 
it is amazing to me that anybody who writes for Deep Space Nine <laughs> could actually put that line anywhere. But I love yeah. that line. I don't necessarily agree with it. I mean, I, I love the wall. I love Brazil. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are not necessarily, sure. you know, happy-go-lucky. Then again, you don't have to be happy-go-lucky to be an affirmation of life. So, yeah, so there were gems in it. And, and certainly there was a lot to pull out as well, um, including the thing that I said, hey, let's go back to that next segment. And I'll be darned if I can remember exactly what that was, John. Eh, whatever, doesn't matter now. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, look, uh, I like to think that sometimes here on Mission Log, we're, we're ahead of the trend when it comes to tropes and memes that we like to identify and, and just beat to death by repeating them. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently I saw online somebody had created a meme about that thing on Star Trek where they'll, they'll, they'll name three people or three events or three incidents, and two of them are real, and the third one is a made-up science fiction thing. Wait, wait, and wait. I'm let's, certain, let's do yeah. the scene. Let's do the thing. Uh, Sadik says, uh, nothing of worth was ever created by a pessimist, and, and, uh, and, and Cisco says... Oh, yes, except for Van Gogh and Beckett and Uraka. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, now, now I, I, I've, yes. I've heard of Van Gogh. Uh, I've heard mm-hmm. of Beckett. You're saying Uraka, uh, the third Uraka. one, was made up for uh, for Star Trek, you're saying? Yes, yes. Right. See, it's a totally fake one. You do, it's like, you know, doing a, a, a test, uh, like getting to know somebody. I'm going to tell you two things about myself <laughs> that are real. One thing that is completely fake. Right. You have to decide which one is made up. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the paintings of Van Gogh. I, I love uh-huh. the writings of Beckett. And I'm really into the... Um, <laughs> Pan flute of Uraka. <laughs> uh, well, that's a lie because nobody is into the pan flute, Ken. <laughs> so, yeah, but I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure that we have pointed that out in the past on Mission Log when Star Trek would do that as a thing, and how much we were entertained by that. Yeah, and 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 I, I like the idea that that now that is out there as a meme. For a bit. not not that we're responsible for that. No, but no, I, no, I just I like that other people get it too. Yeah, you know, that's that, that's fun. <laughs> it is a lot uh, of fun. All right, but so so going back to the question that you asked me. Uh, messages, morals, things to pull from this episode? What do you got? Uh, I mean, look, it's kind of grim, I think, at the end of the day. I mean, it's an exploration of reality and fantasy. And in this case, uh, how maybe those are dangerous to each other? You know, Fena can't live if Nidel can't live. I mean, this is all kind of a mess. And then Cisco is left at the end of the day with this this moment, this dream that that has this tragic ending for him, but uh, but maybe Cisco's a guy who needs his pain, and that that that's another thing that he's just got to live with. And like, well, that that was a thing that happened. It wasn't real, but it affected me emotionally, and and now I got to live with it. Um, and Sayetic is uh, insufferable to his wives, so so he needs to die. I, I, you know, that, that's a little, uh, uh, strange. There's certainly not a message. Um, <laughs> there, there is a, like I said, that story element that was played down though, uh, about Nidel having been abused. And I do think they stopped way short of that here. I, I wonder if it would have changed our, well, I'm certainly it would have changed our, our experience and our, uh, our understanding of this episode. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, going back to what you talked about, the kind of feedback that we got after last week's show, 
and there was feedback. Um, I, I think my favorite comment that we got was somebody who was just sort of reaffirming what you were saying, Ken, which is that TOS and especially early TNG, which was made very much in the mold of the original series, mm -hmm. was saying, here's the way to think about this problem. You, you take the bonk bonk on the head episodes like uh, Let That Be Our Last Battlefield. It's saying, here's how you need to think about this. The way you need to think about this is that we are all the same and racism is dumb, <laughs> you know, right. as opposed to a show like Deep Space Nine, which is saying, here's something to think about for a while. Um, and we don't have to land at necessarily a, a morality play type lesson. And it, it, it doesn't mean that the further we get into DS9 that we won't find moral ideas to ponder and, and asking ourselves whether somebody made a good decision or a bad decision or a more moral decision or a less moral decision. But, but the approach is we're probably going to end up with a lot of episodes like this where you say, well, there's not a, there's not a you see to me moment, but it's okay because the episode succeeds at what it's trying to do. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Uh, are you interested in podcasts? Something tells me you might be. Podcast.roddenberry.com is a great place to find a few. Oh, you got Mission Log, you got Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, and The Track Files. Five great shows, one great place. Podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, that'd be awesome. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, Sanctuary. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Remember the episode, If Wishes Were Horses? This is kind of like that, but way better. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.